This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Jeff Poggi, and he is the CEO of Macintosh Group, makers of legendary audiophile equipment. I'm a bit of a music geek, and when the opportunity came along to speak to the person that's running one of the most renowned and, and highly respected audio gear makers that are out there, I thought I couldn't pass this up. If you're at all interested in CDs or LPs or music generally, if you're at all any type of a gearhead, gadget head, audiophile, music fan, well, you're going to find this to be a fascinating behind-the-scenes look at the maker of one of the most prestigious and high-end audio equipment that's out there. If you're not familiar with Macintosh, they're one of the few brands out there that never stopped using tubes, even as technology changed. The quality of music, that the warmth, uh, the natural sound out of a tube amplifier is unique. Their equipment is not only spectacular, uh, it's beautiful looking. It, it just has a unique visual feel, and it costs quite a few shekels. Their equipment is eye-poppingly expensive, but for the people who can afford it, they say it's worth it. If you've never had a chance to check out Macintosh equipment, you should pop into an audio store as soon as they reopen and just be prepared for a, a live experience. That's what it's like. I found the conversation very interesting, and I think you will also. So with no further ado, my interview of Jeff Poggi, co-CEO of the Macintosh Group. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Jeff Poggi. He is the co-CEO of the Macintosh Group, the legendary audiophile equipment maker. The group also manufactures equipment under the Sonos Faber and Rotel names. Previously, Jeff was at Harmon International and the Bose Corporation. He comes to us with an MBA from Duke University. Jeff Pogge, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you, Barry. It's uh, great to be here. So I've been looking forward to talking to you for some time. I'm, I'm a music buff and a, a part of a, a decreasingly sized uh, number of audiophiles, but I have to ask you about that. Good Enough seems to have taken over uh, the music and audio fields, whether, whether it's iPods or MP3s or streaming. How big is the audience for better than just good enough? Uh, well, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, Barry, because the audience for our products has actually been growing every year. Our business continues to expand year over year uh, and has done so. Uh, well, Macintosh was founded in 1949, so uh, we're looking at 71 years in, and uh, this is going to be our best year ever. So wow. I think that, you know, the prevailing wisdom that says uh, good enough is good enough, maybe we need to rethink how we're defining uh, good enough. Uh, because we we seem to be finding an awful lot of fans for some you know authentic high quality uh, audio systems. So let's stay with that idea. the The concept of just good enough, in other words, isn't harming the high ends 
of the spectrum. It, it really seems to be having its effect on the middle and low end. Is, is that a better way to describe that? Well, I, I think that it's really about, I, I just try to define things about the, the customer. Like, how is the consumer thinking about the, the domain or the category of products? And if we, if we want to do a look back uh, at the industry and at how do people can, you know, consume music, uh, we go back to our AM and FM radios, right? That's where we all started listening to uh, shows and music. And that was good enough for a long time. But, you know, and we're still consuming more AM, FM content than any other media, right? That's uh-huh. still uh, the massive amount of content that we're consuming, but it's actually quite low quality when we think about it. Um, so I, I think that as we've looked at other types of uh, media to consume music, whether it was LPs or tapes or CDs, uh, then we started doing digital downloads, which only lasted sort of a blip in the eye, and we've moved on to streaming now. Um, you know, the different media that we're consuming has changed dramatically over time, but there's always been uh, a fan base, and there's always been an audience for people who want, you know, a true high-performance, uh, goosebump-generating uh, emotional feeling to their uh, to their music and sound, and that audience is actually uh, quite large, and, and it seems to continue to grow every year. Quite quite interesting. You're an engineer by training. What drew you towards the world of music and audio and sound? Well, actually, I think it's uh, it's an interesting story that uh, you and I actually have some overlap in because I know you're a bit of a car nut. Um, and, um, I was actually drawn into music through cars. Um, uh, when I, uh, found a job, I wanted to get into the car industry when I was a couple of years out of school and I was a mechanical engineer and I was working in factories and I loved building things and how things were assembled. And I thought getting into automotive uh, industry would be fantastic. And I found a job at a company called Harman International that was uh, in a factory making loudspeakers and in Martinsville, Indiana, and uh, was a, a production engineer and a quality engineer in the factory and uh, was in charge of, you know, a- assembling loudspeakers for automotive use. Um, and that was my first real touch into... Um, you know, the, the, the space that I ended up spending my entire 25 plus year career in. Uh, but really I was attracted for the automotive purpose. But once I got into, um, the science and the design and the technology of loudspeakers and amplifiers and room acoustics, um, and how it all comes together to make great sound, uh, in the challenging car environment, it then, you know, opened up my, my love and appreciation for a really higher quality home music listening as well. Um, and, uh, that's really how I got, got attracted to it. And once, once I got into the audio business, um, honestly never looked, looked back. It's been really a fantastic journey 
that has, um, you know, been fun from a product uh, development standpoint, a branding, a marketing, and also just a overall emotional experience, a very rewarding time. So let's stick with cars for a moment. The quality of sound in automobiles has just gone up and up. Uh, I have a BMW with a Bang & Olufsen system in it. Uh, the I think Audi uses them also. Meridian seems to have found its way uh, into, maybe it was Lexus. I don't remember where that, that shows up. Um, Land Rover. What's, uh, Land Rover. What, what's going on with mm-hmm. the ultra high-end space in automobiles, and, and what is Macintosh doing, if anything, in that area? Yeah, it's, it's, sound systems in cars is really, uh, it's, it's been a fantastic uh, journey over 30 years now. Uh, from the early 80s when uh, Bose actually first got into the business with Cadillac and then uh, Infinity got into the business with the Chrysler Group brands and uh, JBL was involved in Lincoln. And it really sort of exploded uh, in the 80s and, and into the 90s. And by the mid-90s, um, luxury brands were really starting to look at um, the car, uh, the automotive OEM business as, as an interesting opportunity. And that's where you saw Mark Levinson get involved with Lexus, right. uh, which was really the first uh, sort of super premium brand, um, which then paved the way for others like B&O, uh, as you've mentioned, and, and Bowers. Um, and the, the quality of the audio systems in these cars has just gone up uh, really, uh, by leaps and bounds over the years. Um, and there's a, there's a, a couple of, of key, uh, reasons for that. Uh, one, one of the best things about a car is you know exactly where the listener is going to be. Um, you know, you, you know the room, you know the size of the room, um, you know where the listener is going to be. And so you can really do some amazing optimization. Uh, and of course, in today's world, with all the DSP technology we have at our fingertips, um, you can really do some really precise tuning and optimization that we couldn't do years ago. Um, uh, obviously, the challenges of the car uh, industry is that, well, you're in a car. Uh, you're moving. There's wind noise and road noise. Uh, there's a lot of reflective surfaces like uh, glass and leather. There's also absorb, uh, absorption uh, with seats and, and carpets. So it's a really challenging environment to make good sound. Um, but it, it's it's been an area that's been expanding, uh, you know, year over year, and more brands have, have found their way into it. And I think ultimately it benefits consumers because they get a, a fantastic experience. And in many cases, consumers have the best audio system uh, in their car better than even in their house. Right. Um, and with the, uh, with the Macintosh group, this has a, been a, a new area of focus for us. So about three years ago, we, uh, we made a strategic decision to uh, look at the car industry and see if that could be the next category of products for us to, to come to market with. Uh, but for, for the group, What's most important to us was to find the right partner. Um, we are, let's say, very conservative in our approach, and we are very highly protective of our brands and want to make sure that the brand DNA 
is retained in everything we do. Um, and that really touches all parts of our business. And so if we're going to uh, partner with a car company, we want to make sure that it's a true uh, collaborative effort that can have some amazing synergies for, for both companies. And uh, you know, just recently in September, it was announced that Macintosh um, has been working with uh, the Jeep brand on their brand-new Grand Wagoneer concept vehicle uh, that was uh, unveiled by by Jeep uh, first week of September. Uh, and we had spent three years uh, working with them um, on that vehicle. And we have been part of every uh, concept design studio uh, activity that they've been doing, uh, w- working with their engineers on integrating all of the different components, defining where they need to go, how big they are, how we're going to integrate them, um, how you're going to do the tuning, what the industrial design is going to look like, what the UI is going to look like. It's been a, a massive, massive collaborative act, a, effort and, and something we're really, really proud of. And we think that, you know, this collaboration between Jeep, which is arguably the most American of American car brands, um, and Macintosh, which is, you know, the most American of uh, American audio brands, um, and they're, they're both of those brands being so, uh, I'd say, very fan-based. They have a very strong, passionate uh, followings. Uh, they have a very good reputation for high-quality, high-performance products. And we put all these things together, and, and I think it's going to be, be quite exciting. I would not have guessed Jeep first as the automotive parallel to Macintosh. I, I was thinking somewhere along the lines of, of Bentley or Aston Martin, not just to stay with British firms, but more expensive ultra-lux products. A- am I mischaracterizing who your audience normally is? Well, let me let me answer that in twofold because there's a couple different uh, sort of chapters of our automotive German journey. Um, as you know, in addition to the Macintosh brand, we also have the Sonus Faber brand, which is our wholly owned brand uh, of high-end loudspeakers that are handcrafted in Italy. Um, Sonus Faber has recently announced. Uh, or I should say Maserati has recently announced their MC20 uh, new high-performance uh, uh, vehicle, and that vehicle is going to be equipped with a Sonos Faber system, um, which is a, really, I think, a, an amazing high-performance luxury brand-to-brand match made in Italy, craftsmanship, attention to details, uh, looks you know, frankly, as sexy as it sounds in our case or looks as sexy as it drives in Maserati's case. Um, so that's a much more sort of a high-end premium-to-premium match, which I think works really well for both brands. Um, coming back to the Macintosh question and its partnership with Jeep, um, you know, Macintosh has a following that is a really passionate following of audiophiles for 70-plus years. Um, but most of Macintosh buyers are very practical people. Um, oftentimes, we will hear stories that the Macintosh buyer 
is the person who has saved money for two to three years to buy their first piece of Macintosh gear. And it becomes a, you know, a cherished member of the family. And that, you know, they're happy to sort of slowly acquire their Macintosh system over many years. Um, as opposed to, let's say, a pure high net worth, um, you know, disposable income individual who can drop lots of money and an individual uh, purchase, um, those we certainly have for Macintosh, and there's many rock stars, movie stars, you know, Hollywood rich and famous that are, are fans of our brand, um, and, and obviously they, they have the means uh, to engage in a, in a $100,000, $200,000 Macintosh system at once, but they're really not the average customer. Our, our average sure. customers oftentimes are even starting with used gear, right? Their Macintosh has a really unique um, uh, attribute in that we have probably the highest residual value of, of used products on the market, right. that the brand just holds value um, for a long, long time, which is very odd for audio electronics. Um, uh, most brands, uh, you know, depreciate very quickly. Uh, but if you buy a new new piece of Macintosh, you can often sell it three to five years later for very little decrease in your original value. And then we're seeing people, you know, use that that uh, that sale to then buy up to the next next product. And so the used market often becomes the the entry gateway uh, for customers getting into to Macintosh. So. Back to the original sort of notion of is Jeep and Macintosh a, a good fit? I, I really do believe it is because I think that it's this practical view um, of uh, of the world that both Macintosh and Jeep consumers share, um, but that appreciation for really good, rugged, high performance uh, products, um, which is what you you know what you get when you buy by a Jeep or, or a Macintosh. Quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the equipment that you guys make. Macintosh is legendary for still using tubes today to create a much warmer, more natural sound than just pure chips. What is it that makes your products such best in class? Macintosh has had a long history of designing and manufacturing really the most uh, high-performance precision audio electronics in the industry. Um, and a big piece of this is, frankly, our focus on not only design, but also on manufacturing and doing both equally as well. Um, the, the engineering process and the manufacturing process all take place in Binghamton, New York, at our um, manufacturing and engineering center that's been there for close to 70 years. Um, and the engineering and manufacturing teams are working very closely together. When you look at a Macintosh product, um, you see these big, blue, beautiful meters um, staring at you. Uh, that's instantly recognizable. Uh, the black face, the silver handles, the round knobs, you know a Macintosh when you see it. That consistency of product over such a long time 
to have such a strong visual DNA um, is sort of a, you know, it's, a, a, it's proven the test of time. Uh, the fact that uh, the audio circuitry that we design um, uses the highest quality components uh, that is available, available to the industry um, is an important piece of this. Uh, the, the fact that we uh, take the sort of the time and effort um, to wind our own transformers in our own factory, we actually bend our own metal, or form our own metal for the cases. We have our own paint line that paints the product. We have our own screen printing uh, area uh, to do the printing. Uh, we have our own printed circuit board manufacturing uh, area where we populate all of the components on the circuit board. Of course, we have a, a very intricate uh, testing uh, system that, uh, you know, uniquely tests and identify every product so that we can make sure it meets all of the requirements. Um, so really having this... Uh, uh, integrated manufacturing process guarantees us that the product that we're putting out um, meets all of the requirements for Macintosh. So I, I think it's really this unique combination of uh, collaborative engineering and design work that, that goes hand in hand um, that, that, that guarantees that, that, that precision and, and high performance. And, and I'd have to say that that's, that culture is probably the one thing that really binds together Macintosh and Sonos Faber. So as our two main brands that we manufacture, um, Sonos Faber is uh, sort of a peer equivalent to that manufacturing process and design process, but for loudspeakers made in Italy. And uh, with Sonos Faber, we have a very old-world craftsmanship process for everything from design to sourcing to manufacturing, where our engineering team, again, is all co-located with the factory, um, and all of our suppliers are local uh, to our factory. You know, these are very small-volume, high-precision uh, manufacturers that supply us products, and then our own uh, assembly people are hand assembling the products um, in Italy. We're hand populating printed circuit boards, hand soldering them. We're hand wrapping leather around cabinets. It's just a really intricate process that helps us, I think, design products better because we know how to assemble them very well. Let's talk about that design process a little bit. How much of what you guys are creating or improving or updating is in response to the marketplace and how much of it is just, hey, let's sit down and figure out what we can do on our own using our own expertise and talent to, to push the envelope to the, the next level. Yeah, it's, it's a balance. Um, you know, different innovation processes, you, some companies are, are looking at sort of consumer-driven innovation where it's very much outside-in. Other companies are very much inside-out, uh, where it's, it's sort of that uh, coming out of the R&D technology portfolio and sort of comes to the market. We have a balance uh, of both, and, and we have a, a, a bit of a structured uh, product development process 
that includes, um, you know, the marketing group, the engineering group, the sales group coming all together um, along with feedback from key dealers and distributors in the sales channel. So we're, we're sort of doing that constant sensing of the market to see what's going on and to bring those uh, sort of key trends in. Uh, for instance, examples would be, you know, um, in the home theater business when uh, Dolby goes from Dolby 5.1 to 7.1 to Atmos, right? There's different trends that are happening in the technologies that we need to be sensitive to to make sure that we're grabbing those technologies and introducing those to our products at the right time um, uh, with the different wireless technologies and Bluetooth, Bluetooth high def or um, you have the different, uh, you know, Wi-Fi. Um, we have home control system integrations. All of these technologies are sort of third-party technologies that we want to make sure that we're monitoring and bringing into our products at the right time. But then there's the stuff that only we can do. Um, and uh, one example of that would be the recently released uh, MC901. This is a, a truly only Macintosh could do this product. It's a, a 900 watt uh, monoblock amplifier um, wow. with a retail price of 17,500, uh, and you need two, right? Because it's a monoblock, so you have to buy two of them together. Uh, but the really interesting piece of it is it combines. It's a we call it a dual mono uh, product. So there's actually two audio outputs. One is two based, 300 watts of two-based amplification plus 600 watts of solid-state amplification. And it's designed for a large loudspeaker where you're going to buy-amp that product and you're going to use the tube power stage to drive your mid-ranges and tweeters and you're using the solid-state to drive your woofers. It's it's really kind of a, a wacky, crazy product that um, doesn't exist on the, the market anywhere. And it was something that our, our technology team, our engineering team, came up with. And as soon as we launched it, we sold out. And we've been back-ordered ever since um, because it's, it's such a unique, uh, fun, you know, Macintosh-only product. Quite, so that's, quite interesting. Uh, yeah, that's, that's part of the, the fun of the engineers, right, to let them loose once in a while to do something that, you know, the market doesn't know is coming. And the market and, certainly seems to have responded to that. Which, which makes me want to go back to what you mentioned about pulling all the teams together. You, you mentioned engineering and sales, but you also mentioned marketing. How do you guys market? I, I want to say the product sells itself, but I know that's not true. Do you guys advertise? What do you do to push the Macintosh brand name in front of the consumers who are likely buyers? Uh, yeah, the, the biggest part of our marketing... Um, uh, we focus a lot on PR. Um, we do try to get drive the awareness of our new products, um, you know, through uh, various media channels to try to get as much exposure as we can. Um, over the last many years, like every other company, we've moved from, you know, traditional print advertising to a more digital um, search. Uh, SEO uh, activity, um, because that's how people are searching for products these days. You need to be, you know, online and, and, and available and, and have your products, um, 
be discoverable uh, through the, the, the digital side and, and it's social as well. And we spent uh, incrementally every year, we spend a little bit more of our budget um, into the digital social space than the year before. So that becomes a, you know, a bigger portfolio for us to try to engage and communicate with customers. Um, but for us, a big part of our marketing is still a bit old school. And it's really about, um, frankly, getting butts in seats, right? If I can get you to sit down and listen to a pair of Sonus Fiber Olympica speakers or a, a Macintosh uh, MC611 amplifier, I can probably get you to buy it. Um, it's the emotional experience that you get when you listen to a really great audio system um, is amazing. Right. It truly is one of those wow moments, uh, goosebump generating times. And if you haven't heard it, you need to hear it. Um, and if you have heard it, you know what I'm, you know, speaking of. And, and so a big part of our marketing is really working with our dealers and distributors, uh, to do events, to bring people into the stores, to get them in front of the product, to get them exposed to the product and give them that emotional, uh, uh, that emotional opportunity to engage because these products may look interesting online. You can get great write-ups and reviews and people can, you know, from the hi-fi press can review the products and you can get five-star awards and it's all great and it all absolutely helps, but there's nothing like actually experiencing it for yourself. And it's, it's no different than any other passion product, right? It's one thing to say, uh, boy, that that uh, uh, you say you drive a BMW, that BMW, boy, that looks nice. But it's a different thing to get, you know, behind the wheel on a test track and really to, you know, put it to its uh, its full potential. Um, it gives you a different experience and a different appreciation for the product. And so, really driving people uh, into getting great quality demos is the best way to to market our product. Huh, interesting. It's like the old joke, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. doesn't really convey the full sense of, of, of the moment. There was uh, one of my, my first mentors, uh, Floyd Toole, uh, Dr. Floyd Toole, from, uh, he was the, the C, uh, CTO of Harman. Um, he said that uh, basically our job is science in the service of art. Um, that the, the job of the, the manufacturer of products, right, is to preserve the art of the creators. And I've, that's stuck with me for 20 years now that, you know, my responsibility is really to the musicians, to the producers, to the recording engineers, to the people that are creating, uh, the art. I'm just trying to, to do our best work to, uh, to make their effort, uh, worthwhile. Quite, quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about your title. You're co-CEO. You don't see a lot of that these days. How does that work? What, what are the benefits and challenges of having co-CEOs? Uh, yeah, it's, for our business, it works, uh, honestly, extremely well. Um, so I joined Macintosh Group uh, just over three years ago now uh, as the co-CEO. Uh, Charlie Randall. Uh, is uh, my partner, um, and Charlie has been with Macintosh his entire career. Uh, so he actually started in Macintosh as a, an intern, 
uh, engineering intern out of RIT and has been there ever since, uh, has been president of Macintosh for over a decade, and uh, together we've been co-CEOs now for the last uh, three years. And the way it works for our company is that uh, we are organized really by, uh, by brand. So Charlie is running Macintosh. I am running Sonus Faber and Samiko. So those are our, our three main uh, businesses. Um, everyone knows Macintosh, Mac Labs with all of its products, uh, Sonus Faber being our Italian uh, loudspeaker brand. And then Samiko is our uh, distribution company based in the U.S. that distributes uh, many other hi-fi audio brands, uh, including uh, Project uh, from Austria and Rotel, Electronics, and we also distribute Basso Continuo, which is a high-end Italian uh, hi-fi racks um, for your gear, uh, as well as our own uh, cartridge brand for turntables, um, Phono cartridges. So the co-CEO job works well because um, we have a very thin group structure. Uh, the group basically consists of four people. Charlie and I are two of them. So there's not much group-level work to do. So we're allowed to really run our businesses as our businesses. And Charlie gets to run Macintosh day-to-day, uh, -day, as he always has. And I I have the opportunity to uh, lead the Sonos Faber and Samico business. And we can pretty much work independently and then have the advantage of actually use each other as sounding boards and, um, you know, peers to collaborate with uh, as, as, we, as we see fit. Um, so it gives you, uh, frankly, it gives me uh, a great uh, person to bounce ideas off of, to, uh, you know, build strategy off of. And um, uh, then together we sit on the board of directors uh, with our investors and, you know, represent the group, total group level performance. Uh, so it's quite a, quite a good collaborative uh, effort. We both happen to be engineers. Uh, we both happen to come from small farming communities, and we both happen to love the Pittsburgh Steelers. So we've, you know, we've got uh, similar backgrounds and, and a lot of sort of uh, common shared experiences that we can, uh, we can play off of. Quite interesting. So I was having a conversation with a friend about how crazy 2020 has been. He owns Park Avenue Audio in, in Manhattan, and he mentions that He's projecting 2020 is actually going to be a better year for the sale of high-end audio equipment than he saw in 2019, which itself was a record-breaking year. You mentioned something similar. Given all the mayhem of this year and the lockdown and the pandemic, why do you think this is such a banner year for high-end audio equipment? Yeah, it's certainly been the most interesting year of my professional career. So, and uh, as we were looking at uh, the world in front of us, you know, back in the March, April, May timeframe, uh, it certainly didn't look like a banner year. Uh, Macintosh had to close its factory for six weeks, uh, right, because of the pandemic. Uh, Sonos Faber had to close its factory for a month because of the pandemic. Um, and it's hard as a manufacturer when you build all your own stuff to sell things when your factories are closed. Um, so <laughs> yeah. it looked a little bit dark uh, for a period of time for sure. But um, what has happened uh, in the industry is that 
as people have spent more time at home, um, they have uh, spent less time or less money as well on other discretionary purchases. And so what seems to be happening is the money that used to be spent on vacations, on food, on dining, on live concerts, on going to the opera or different shows, uh, that discretionary income is being basically used now to upgrade your home. And we see a lot of that industry booming. White goods sales are booming. Uh, remodeling projects, uh, home refinancing is booming. And audio and video is booming as well. As consumers are spending more time in their home, um, they're investing in their audio systems. And really from June forward, uh, every month this year has been our best month ever. It, it's been wow. sort of a record-breaking year for the company, um, which is quite amazing. Uh, and we're, we're obviously quite thrilled uh, with that. Um, and, and very, very happy. Um, and we hope um, that meth, much of this uh, trend uh, continues. Um, and actually, it's more than just a hope, because when you start looking at other uh, sort of dynamics that are happening, there's actually a number of things that are very favorable for our industry. I think you mentioned earlier that uh, LP sales are, are booming. Um, and actually, they've uh, LP sales are are at the, a record level uh, this year than they have been, and they've been growing now for a decade straight. Um, so if more people are buying records, they're going to be buying more audio systems. So that trend doesn't seem to be slowing down. It seems to have been accelerated by the pandemic, but it's it's going to be here for a while. But the other trend is as movie theaters and the whole uh, movie industry changes, um, that's having a really interesting effect on our business, too. Um, with AMC announcing its bankruptcy, uh, we know that more consumers are going to be watching movies at home. And guess what? They're going to be putting in more home theaters, which is going to help our business. Uh, the latest announcement by uh, Warner Brothers and uh, HBO uh, with the, the direct-to-streaming uh, releases of movies for the next year that's going to help us as well. So there's going to be more people, you know, watching more movies at home. So I think there are some other trends that are really favorable to the to the industry. Quite interesting. So that's some of the changes that have taken place in 2020. Uh, obviously, the shift in in movies and streaming video is pretty significant. What sort of products are you going to make towards that direction? Obviously, you're, you've been all audio and, and a surround sound, uh, either preamp or receiver makes sense. You guys aren't going to venture towards the video side, are you? Uh, no. Uh, the, the way we are looking at uh, this is the industry has been shifting uh, from a, let's say, a traditional, what we would call specialty retail store, right, which would sell goods uh, to consumers uh, towards uh, a project-based business, if you will, the custom installation business or CDA right. channel. Um, so the audio-video business really has been moving for a number of years uh, from a retail-based environment to a project-based environment. That trend is only accelerating uh, now. 
as uh, consumers are, they're doing things more than just audio and video. Of course, they're putting in wireless networks and lighting controls and home controls, safety Uh and security systems. And so when they they think about investing in their home, they're looking at a variety of different products and, and audio and video becomes part of that. And so one of the big changes for us is how do we provide more products that, that fit into that sort of project-based business for your home? On the Sonus Father side, uh, we've uh, on, uh, launched our first line of in-wall and in-ceiling loudspeakers, right? things that are going to be permanently built into your home as opposed to your traditional floor-standing or bookshelf speakers. So that's uh, been a new development for us that we think will – uh, be a, a very good investment and, and be a, a good product line for us going forward. Uh, and likewise, Macintosh continues to expand its line of audio video processors and uh, multi-channel amplifiers that are more uh, designed for uh, custom installation, home theater usage. So uh, we think that there's a lot of ways that we can tap into that uh, let's say, growth of, of movie watching or TV watching at home um, through the, the audio space. Um, and there's there's a, a very good trend there and, and one that we, we see nothing but, uh, you know, double-digit type growth for the next few years. So it sounds like there's a little bit of an inherent tension between marketing and sales and these projects. Um, as someone who's done a couple of these projects for my own home, I know what it's like to work with a designer and an audio store and say, here's what I want, what technology makes this work. With equipment like Macintosh, you really want to get those butts in the seats to experience you know, the sound and, and the whole emotional moment of that. How do you reconcile the two? Very often, the homeowner is just giving marching orders to an architect, a designer, whoever, whatever, and then on top of everything else, the internet is in the middle of all this, and you obviously don't get the same experience, especially with audio, from the internet as you would live and in person and in a, a high-end listening environment with top-of-the-line products. How do you navigate that sort of complex minefield? Yeah, for, for us, it's, you know, that demonstration is still very important, and so we uh, we have a strong program to try to encourage our dealers uh, to set up uh, proper demonstration systems right, in their showrooms. And even the project-based business, there's uh, many of them have, uh, you know, they're more consumer experience centers. Um, uh, they're not retail trade, uh, trade show uh, stores, but um, these experience centers can often house a nice uh, audio-video demonstration room. And so we do think that that's still an important uh, piece of this. Um, but the other advantage we have is that um, we have a very strong brand. Actually, we have a, you know two very strong brands, uh, Macintosh and Sonos Faber, uh, as well as the other brands we're representing in, in distribution. But if your brand carries that quality and trust factor, uh, oftentimes the, you know, the designer can sit down with a, a client and say, you know, I'm going to install a Macintosh home theater for you. And here's the, you know, the, the components that are going to be used. 
a lot of clients will just trust that it's going to be amazing, right? That, huh. you know, if, if you, your brand carries that, um, uh, that reputation um, for, for quality and performance, then uh, you, can, you can make it a sale without, without the demo. I still would huh. prefer the demo because I know that's only going to surprise and delight the customer even more. But um, that's the power of the brand, and that's why the marketing and the PR and the reviews of products is still important because, you know, oftentimes consumers are buying things uh, without actually hearing them first. Amazing. So let's talk a little bit about vinyl sales. For the first time in decades, there are now more sales of albums in vinyl than in CDs. What do you think this means? Yeah, we saw this coming, honestly, uh, four or five years ago. The, the number of uh, albums have been growing for a good decade. Uh, year over year, album sales continue to grow. And over that same period, CD sales have continued to shrink. And so there was, you know, eventually we knew there was a crossing point. Um, I think it says two things. One, it says streaming has dominated and streaming has killed CDs. And that the idea of owning CDs uh, in the current generation of consumers is is a lost art. Um, and that uh, that is going to be the main way to consume music going forward. Um, on the LP side of things, I think it's actually a bigger reflection on sort of a, I guess, a psychological or an emotional uh, sort of change in consumers' behaviors. Um, people that buy LPs and turntables and want to listen to um, vinyl, frankly, want to disconnect from their digital, fast-paced, uh, sort of hyper-daily reality. Right. It is so easy to put on a pair of headphones and stream Spotify or Tidal or your favorite service. Um, you can do that in an instant. And then you can jump from song to song, track to track, album to album, instantaneously into all sorts of mix. That being replaced by uh, a turntable vinyl listening experience, now you're talking about I have to actually invest in the activity of listening to music. And I really get excited by this because that means somebody is saying, listening to music is important to me. I'm going to spend the time to find the album, you know, dig through the collection to the one I want, put, you know, clean it off first, put it on the platter, turn it on, sit down, probably grab my favorite beverage and listen for 25 minutes until I have to flip the album and then repeat the process. Um, people that are doing this are truly engaging with their music more. And uh, it's really exciting because when you look at what albums are selling, um, you have artists like uh, Billie Eilish and Taylor Swift, right, in the top 10 artists. These are new, modern, young artists that are, are, are selling, uh, you know, albums through the roof. Um, and to me, that's exciting. It's not just um, the Bruce Springsteens or the Pink Floyds and the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, which have classically always been in the top 10, right? Because those are people like maybe me uh, buying the albums for the second or third time. Um, 
But now you've got this whole new group of artists that are really um, putting their content out on vinyl, and it's really creating a whole new experience for a whole new generation of of listeners that I think uh, bodes very well for the uh, for the industry. Quite quite interesting, and 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 I will make note that when I was in college, that's when CDs really started emerging, and, and they cost double what albums do, and, and that situation seems to have reversed. Vinyl LPs are now considerably more expensive uh, than CDs. Is that a function of albums being embraced by the audiophile community, and there's still some um, negative perception of the coldness and harshness of compact discs? No, actually, I, I think that the uh, that price change, uh, which uh, is absolutely true, um, is more of a function of a basic S curve of an industry. Uh, when albums were dominant and CDs were in their uh, infancy, right, the technology cost of producing CDs was very high. People were scaling up factories. You had the technology uh, investment to actually produce those. That was new. There was R&D that you had to amortize into the cost of the CD to produce them, whereas albums were a very established uh, sort of manufacturing process at that point, and so you had some volume efficiencies. Well, you fast forward, you know, 25 years in the future, and a lot of things have happened to the industry. Now CDs cost very little because the actual capacity is so underutilized, right? They had all of these factories that built all these CDs that now there is no more demand for. So the cost of that is down dramatically because you have an oversupply of capacity and an under-demand. Whereas albums, actually, the capacity dried up and um, the we lost a lot of production capacity for albums uh, when when CDs were booming. And so now that album sales are growing again, uh, manufacturers actually now have to start investing back into making uh, albums again. And, and so you've got a reinvestment curve that's going to drive some costs. So there's, there's that dynamic, which is fundamental. But then I think there's a second piece on top of that, which really gets more to the marketing angle, where uh, in albums, as they traditionally were, they are a source of art and inspiration, right? There's more content when you buy an album because you have the five-page or six-page booklet, right, with all the, the lyrics of, of the music and art and, uh, you know, uh, different uh, content that they can deliver to you. And so I think that artists are investing more into the album to try to make it something that has a higher value, um, and therefore it's going to have a higher price. Now, the, the, I guess the third dynamic, if I was to think about this, was the fact that artists can make, uh, from a royalty perspective, their royalty rates on physical sales of albums are much, much higher right, than a streaming service. And so artists are actually really promoting LPs right now because their whole financial world has been thrown upside down by streaming. Uh, because they're not selling as much physical media CDs as they used to be, they've had to either two or more, which obviously in the last 12 months is impossible, or they have to produce albums. 
as their physical media to try to uh, make up for that, that uh, you know, lost CD uh, royalties. So you, you mentioned people like Taylor Swift and Billie Eilish. What sort of changes are taking place in music? How does changing music tastes affect the way you think about the equipment that you guys are, are creating? Um, you know, honestly, we do not believe that the musical styles or genres or people's musical preferences have any bearing uh, on the equipment that we are producing. Um, It kind of goes back to the the comment I made earlier that our job is to give people the best possible experience uh, when they're listening to their music as possible. And I want them to get those goosebumps, to have that emotional moment, whether it's a tender moment or it's a dynamic, uh, you know, violent moment, uh, depending on the type of music that they're, they're listening to, um, they should enjoy that in the best possible way. And therefore, you know, if our equipment um, is able to give them extremely high fidelity performance, high dynamics, great sound quality, low distortion, amazing sense of space and imaging. Regardless of whether you're listening to rap, classical, rock and roll, country, I don't think it matters. So my stereotype as to who the audiophile component purchaser is, it tends to be somebody who's more of a classical music fan who, who wants to hear the nuances between the third violinist and the second viola and really capture the full spectrum of a, of a big orchestra. Is that just, you know, a tired stereotype? Is that long past as to who the purchasers of Macintosh equipment are? I don't think it's a, an old stereotype. I think it's just 5% of the population. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of people that are uh, passionate classical musical fans and that they really can get extreme value from a, a high-quality uh, audio system and that for all the reasons you, you just described because of the level of detail and dynamics uh, that you can really get. And there's an appreciation for uh, the art in a very strong way um, but I do believe that that's a, that's a small part of the population. I, I would say it's, if I drew a parallel back to the car industry, um, uh, you know, BMW makes the, uh, the, the M, M3, and they also make all the three series. Well, the M3 is only less than 5% of the population of those right. um, vehicles, but they advertise it all the time, and they use it as their performance halo, but most people don't. You know, don't go there. They they just drive around to the grocery store and back, and they're they're three stories. Um, so they don't don't really use it for that. And and I think maybe that's a similar parallel where uh, you don't have to be a classical musical fan to get all the enjoyment out of a, a high quality loudspeaker um, system, a high quality uh, audio system. Uh, you can enjoy it for what you do, and it's going to give you an immense set of pleasure, um, uh, whether you're listening to you know classic rock or not. Uh, I am a huge classic rock fan, and that is my 
my go-to uh, genre, and I, I can promise you that I much enjoy listening to, uh, you know, Bruce Springsteen and Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin on uh, my Macintosh and Sonos Faber system much better than, you know, my Apple earbuds. I wouldn't doubt that for a second. You know, what's kind of fascinating is that we, when I was younger, your entertainment options were far more limited than they are today. And, and the thought of having friends over, having a listening party for a new release was, was not uncommon. Today, I have so many different ways to listen to music, but I find myself doing much less of, let me just stop for 45 minutes and listen to an album straight through, as opposed to having something play in the background while uh, I'm, I'm doing something else. So the question I'm, I want to get towards is, is the LP, is the album still the sort of entertainment event that it once was? And if it's not, how long is that audience going to continue to engage in that sort of behavior? I think that the, the way I see the dynamics between consumers engaging in albums, let's say, versus streaming, um, is streaming becomes uh, the first choice for convenience, right? That's just easy to access, easy to use. Um, I can take it anywhere with me. And I, it's great for music discovery, right? I can find new artists so quick and fast uh, uh, when, I, when I do searches, and it can give me recommendations of what artists are similar to others. And that, honestly, is such a great power that we've never had in the industry that I think it's a super benefit because it's introducing people to many more uh, types of music and many more artists than maybe they would have found on their own, let's say, in the old days. Um, but then if they really attach to something, they're going to go out and end up buying a physical copy of it, right? And then exploring that same content that they had on a streaming service, but then in an LP um, or possibly a, a CD or SACD if they still enjoy those. But that's how I see the dynamic. So I do see the the album or the vinyl experience not as a everyday listening experience. I see that as a special moment in time, right? It's, 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 it is a time that you're investing with your music. That is something you, 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 you have to sort of plan for because, um, it's not a five minute instantaneous, um, sort of response. Uh, so, uh, I think that, that the fact that LPs are growing, um, year over year is really good because it's saying more consumers are willing to spend more time with their music and that they're getting more value out of that, um, that, that experience. And so I think that these two very different uh, mediums um, actually cohabitat together, co, you know, uh, survive together in a very interesting way and can actually help each other. I'm going to uh, sell me an upgrade. My home system, I have a couple of different ways I listen to music. Just for background in, in the kitchen, we have a, a, a Sonos streaming system. Outside, a Sonance system that I have hooked up to a, uh, a Blue Sound vault drive. In the den, I have a Rotel 
home theater preamp driven by a Class A amp going through Bowers and Wilkins speakers, B&W speakers. What, what should I do? And a Rotel CD player. What should I do if I want to upgrade that system to the next level? You know, I, I would uh, I would want to know more things about your room and your room size before I was to be presumptuous to define it for you. But um, you know, I think that um, it's it's really about your level of enjoyment. You know, and we have obviously a wonderful range of products at Sonos Faber. Uh, our entry-level product uh, for your loudspeakers goes from our Lumina series that are starting at around $2,000 for a floor-standing pair of speakers all the way up to our AIDA, which is, you know, $120,000. Um, so it's really all about the physical size of the room. Um, that's a big part of, of how you would size your loudspeaker. And uh, also about the, uh, you know, the overall uh, sound quality uh, that you'd like to achieve. And uh, depending on, on those specifications, there's lots of choices that I think can be amazing. Um, and then the Macintosh uh, amplifier family and preamplifier and CDs and turntables all scale uh, in a very similar way where we offer consumers the ability um, to uh, everything. Uh, our, our newest Macintosh turntables actually is a fully integrated unit that has the uh, amplifier, D-class amplifier built into the turntable with a Bluetooth uh, Aptex receiver in it. So if you wanted to just have one piece of electronics you could buy, uh, uh, the, this product and actually do your streaming and your LP playing all from one, and all you need is a pair of speakers. So, so it's a very flexible uh, product line that has lots of different solutions. Um, but I'd, I'd want to know a lot more before I give you specific recommendations. All right, so, so let me flip the question on you. Tell us about the system that you have at home. What do you enjoy your favorite classic rock albums on what what's that system look like oh it's yeah thanks it's uh it's uh i guess my third child if you will um <laughs> the i have sonus faber uh, olympica nova fives which we just launched uh, uh about a year and a half ago uh really a fantastic uh floor standing uh, loudspeaker and i have a full uh, macintosh set of electronics behind that um, a C2700 uh, tube preamplifier, uh, the MT5 uh, Macintosh turntable, uh, the MCT500 SACD CD player, because I am one of those old, old guys that still has a rack of hundreds of CDs, and I actually take them out sometimes, um, and an MC462, which is a 400-watt stereo um, amplifier, uh, driving the whole thing. Um, and for streaming, I added in uh, Projects uh, Streambox S2 Ultra, which is a fantastic little streaming box that allows me to connect with uh, Rune, Tidal, Kobus, and do all my, my streaming. Interesting. I, I, too, am one of those old-school CD users, but I recently started moving them all to a hard drive 
in a lossless fashion. It's the Blue Sounds vault. And my plan is to eventually just put a few thousand discs on that and then just keep them shelved in the basement where I don't have to uh, hunt for exactly the one I'm looking for. I'll just be able to scroll and find it and theoretically have full CD quality sound. Let me throw a curveball at you. Nespresso machines are the MP3 audio of coffee makers. Discuss. <laughs> I disagree. I think Nespresso machines are fantastic for their convenience and speed. Um, and I have one in my home, and I, I think it's fantastic. Um, I, you know, I think it's, it's a fun uh, coffee to me is a, a really fun topic. I, I very much enjoy it. I love nothing more than when I'm in Italy to go to a proper uh, barista and get a proper right. espresso and, and really enjoy it uh, standing up at the bar with the colleagues and chatting, which is the only way to do it. Um, but honestly, it's not something I have the time or patience to do myself. And I think it's one of those wonderful things in life where everybody has their their thing that they're willing to, you know, go that extra quality step and, and really put the time and effort into doing it just right. And if you wanted to come over and make me a proper espresso, I would happily enjoy it, but I don't have the time to do it myself. Now, I have to imagine that that sort of comment is what a lot of people who are audio purchasers say, yeah, that, that's a nice system, but I just want convenience. I don't want expense. I don't want complexity. Just, just give me a simple sort of thing. And on the coffee side, the technology has advanced to the point where you could get practically those sort of instant coffee convenience. Take a look at something like the Breville Oracle Touch, where they literally do everything from the grinding to the tamping to... You know, your job is to to move the container of steamed milk to pour it into the shot of a, a espresso, which seems to be worth it for the for the improvement in quality. Both fields, coffee and audio, the law of diminishing returns kicks in as as the price goes up. But this really seems to be something that the technology has advanced dramatically over the past couple of years. So I'm going to steer you in that direction. So I, I was just so amused that, that you were not as ritualistic and obsessive about your coffee as I assume you are about your, your sound systems. And to me, that's part of the same continuum. It, it's, it's how much do you want to spend in effort, energy, and time for that next level up in quality? Yeah, I, I love this uh, this kind of conversation because I think it applies <laughs> to so many different aspects of life, and I think it frankly is what makes the world go round because each of us have our own sort of passion areas that we're willing to, you know, we're willing to do whatever it takes to get that perfect level of performance, and in other places we we shortcut. Um, you know, I I've been uh, accused. Uh, of being unsophisticated because I don't wear a watch. Um, I've just never been a watch player, and a lot of people are uh, in a similar domain with watches where you can get these amazing timepieces, right. which which I really can appreciate from afar, but they just don't fit, the, you know, my DNA. 
All right, and plus every one of us walks around with a phone in our pocket, which gives you precise atomic set time. Um, so, so watches have become um, uh, as much decorative as, as anything. Um, so I know I only have you for a, a limited amount of time. Let me jump to my favorite questions that I ask all my guests. So we mentioned video earlier. Tell us what you're streaming these days. What's your favorite Netflix or Amazon Prime or, or podcast? What, what's keeping you entertained? Oh, yeah. So there's, there's some great stuff uh, that we're, uh, we're engaging with. So with the family, uh, we are absolutely in love with Schitt's Creek. Um, that's, uh -huh. I don't know if you've ever enjoyed that, but it's a, it's a wonderful program, uh, that we discovered too late. And so we're trying to catch up. Um, and, uh, that's, uh, that's our family entertainment. Uh, my wife and I are watching Gamora, which is an Italian, uh, uh, sort of crime, you know, mob drama, uh, that's, that's, that was produced, uh, you know, in Italian and, I think I'm watching that to uh, to help me with my uh, you know my Italian to for my uh, my Sonus Faber team as well. So that's uh, that's great. Um, those are the two shows that I'm watching uh, in, uh, regularly. And then um, uh, the other thing that I uh, I enjoy uh, privately uh, is uh, books on tape. I, I do a lot of listen listening to books on tape and. Uh, I just finished the Iliad, which I had never uh, uh, read or listened to previously. So that that's been pretty interesting. Tell us about your early mentors. Who helped shape your career? Uh, well, it all boy, it all starts with I think my mom. Uh, is she uh, she's a fantastic lady, single mom, uh, raised uh, myself and uh, my older sister. Uh, just all you know, really hardworking. Uh, sort of uh, small town, uh, small town, uh, you know, sort of I'd call it country farm, hardworking values, uh, truth, honesty, hard work. Uh, it all started there. And uh, my first, uh, one of my first bosses, uh, Paul Nath uh, from Harmon, great sales executive. He, I attribute him to really helping me. Um, I can remember the moment where I went from being an engineer to going into the uh, sales group, which I can still remember a Dilbert cartoon about this, uh, saying, you know, how insulting that is for an engineer to move into sales. And um, he actually sold me on the benefits of going into sales uh, as an engineer uh, to learn about customers and to learn about what the customers want, the need, to how to how to help them, that if you, you understood your customers and you listened to them, you will be a better engineer, you'll be a better product developer, uh, and then it would be an, an important skill for you to develop. And um, that was really an important sort of moment for me, and he was a great uh, mentor for me in that regards. And also just uh, to teach the skills they don't teach you in engineering school, you know, about Person, uh, building relationships with people, customer relationship management, influencing skills, all of the soft things that really over the course of a career end up being uh, probably more important than the hard technical skills that you, you learn in, in school all those years ago. Uh, so Paul was really a, a fantastic mentor for me. Um, 
uh, early on in my my career. Hmm. Interesting. Tell us some of your favorite books. What What are you reading now? What What are some of your all time favorites? This is I'm a passionate reader. Uh, usually, multiple books going on at any given time. Uh, uh, my most recent reads this year. Uh, I fell in love with Simon Sinek. Um, Start with Why was the the first book he put out probably a decade ago. Really wonderful book. Uh, uh, he did a couple others after that. Leaders Eat Last, uh, Infinite Game was his most recent one. And it's really uh, a great content to help uh, companies, I think, really remember uh, sort of more of a, a personal truth and, and keep grounded in why we as businesses exist. Um, which is much, much more than uh, profit and loss. Um, so Simon Sinek, uh, I have to say, is a, a really highly regarded and one of my, my latest reads. Um, all-time favorites, um, I go back to Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, probably the most influential book on me in my entire life. Um, still have a copy uh, right in back of my desk. Um, really a, a great foundational book, I think, for, for young people to think about how to approach the world. Um, some of the more business-focused books, like uh, uh, Jack Welsh's book, Winning, um, uh, Ram Charan, Larry Bossidy's book, Execution, uh, really kind of core managerial books of you know how to run a business or a company. I think those were, were fantastic. Um, John Maxwell's got a bunch of books on leadership. Uh, five level, levels of leadership that I, I think was a, a spectacular book on leadership. Um, and actually, another book I just reread, um, Clayton Christensen, a uh, famous uh-huh. uh, innovation author from uh, uh, that had passed away last fall, his book, The Innovator's Dilemma, um, which was written probably 15, 20 years ago now, um, which I read a long time ago, I reread just uh, sort of in honor of his passing. That's a fantastic list to start with. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who was interested in a career in the audio industry? The advice I'd give to a recent college grad would be find, find a career that you love. Find something that you are passionate about and do it with conviction. Um, don't chase promotions, salaries, titles. Be true to yourself and what makes you happy, uh, because in the long run, you're going to be way more successful if you if you follow uh, follow the things that are really interesting to you that sort of you know um, you're emotionally connected with. Um, that's foundational. Uh, I would also encourage them to um, learn about emotional intelligence early. It's not a topic that uh, they teach in universities, um, and it's usually not something as young people we're very good at. Um, uh, usually, we're uh, as a young person, you're out to prove yourself and what your own abilities are and what your contributions can be. Um, really being reflective on, on what you're good at, what your colleagues are good at, where your weaknesses are, and being humble. Um, and recognizing that uh, teams win championships, uh, not individuals. Um, I think uh, that's the foundational sort of spirit that 
I think sets everybody apart. I don't think anything in business has ever been done by one person, or at least not anything that's worth anything, let's say, or anything of, of a sort of material impact. Uh, you really do need a group of people to get something done, and and really building those those sort of team skills, um, I think, are, are critically important early on in your career. And our final question, what do you know about the world of audio and audiophile equipment today that you wish you knew 20 or so years ago when you were first ramping up in this business? Mm. Um, you know, the audiophile or audio industry is a, it's a very small hobbyist industry with uh, lots of really super passionate people. And um, I think that the thing I've learned the most over the years is that our business is less about competing with other audiophile firms or other audio firms, and it's more about growing the entire industry. We together as a community of audio companies um, – if we do a better job getting those butts and seats, getting more consumers to come to dealers and listen to the gear, regardless of the brand that it is, we're going to build a bigger base of consumers for everyone. And that's going to effectively grow the industry across the board. And so I think that building of a collaboration amongst co uh, companies together to build the industry um, is something that's really important to me today, um, but not something I was aware of uh, many years ago. Quite, quite fascinating. Jeff, thank you for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Jeff Poggi. He is the co-CEO of Macintosh Group. If you enjoyed this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the other 400 or so such conversations we've put together over the past six and a half years. You can find that at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you usually feed your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Give us a review on Apple iTunes. Be sure to sign up for our daily reads at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column on Bloomberg at bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps us put these conversations together each week. Nick Falco is my audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Mike Batnick is my head of research. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters of Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>